Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 538 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. Although I do have a bit of a surprise guest co-host this week who regular listeners know and love, but we will come to that soon. What have you been up to this week? I am gearing up for the Sydney Writers Festival, and I know that there are a lot of listeners who are going to be there. So if you do spot me, please do come and say hi. The festival, the Sydney Writers Festival, is on at Carriage Works in Sydney, obviously, from the 22nd to the 28th of May. So obviously it is coming right up. Well, most of it is at Carriage Works, but there are other events at places like the Sydney Town Hall, Chatswood, Western Sydney and so on. The best thing to do is to check out the website to see what's near you. So that's SWF, short for Sydney Writers Festival, .org.au. I'm mainly going to the Carriage Works events, so I hope to bump into you there if you're there and perhaps we could have a coffee or if it's the end of the day, maybe a glass of rosé. Of course, this comes hot on the heels of the Melbourne Writers Festival. I wasn't in Melbourne for that, but from all reports, I hear it was fabulous. So if you went to the Melbourne Writers Festival, I hope it filled your literary cup. Also, great to see so many of you enroll in our Melbourne courses in creative writing. There is a weekend workshop this weekend at the Abbotsford Convent. It is such a great place to have a writing workshop. So much history, the building is gorgeous, the gardens are beautiful, they're filmed lots of movies there and TV shows and of course you get to do it all with the amazingly talented author Nicole Hayes. So if you've enrolled in that, have a wonderful time. And if you want to find out more, just go to writercenter.com.au slash Melbourne Creative Writing. That's writercenter.com.au slash Melbourne Creative Writing. All right, now let's move on to our writing tip for this week. This episode's writing tip comes from an article on the site, The Literary Hub, called Managing Time in Fiction. And it's written by American author Rachel Beanland. One habit that some writers have is to basically describe every single thing that happens in a story. And of course, that's just not necessary. A reader doesn't need to know everything that happens every step of the way. They just need to know the important scenes and events. However, the reader may need to know that certain things have taken place. And in those instances, you can use a summary. As the article says, we write the scenes that are most resonant, then rely on summary to pitch us forward in time until we arrive at another important moment. Now, if you'd like to super deep dive on how and when to use summaries versus scenes, we actually have a fantastic course dedicated to that and it is so useful. I learned so much from it as well because there are scenes where you do need to give that blow-by-blow account, but there are some things or multiple scenes that you may have written that can actually be shortened into a couple of sentences. The key is to know when to do which one, right? So in our course, the Fiction Essentials Scenes course, which is a fantastic self-paced course, it goes into all of the details on exactly when you need to write scenes, when you need to write summaries, and how to do each of them effectively. You can check out that course at writercenter.com.au slash scenes. 
But now let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece by none other than Tom Hanks. Okay, we love Tom Hanks here at the Australian Writers' Centre because last time we gave away one of his books, he, yes, the man himself, Tom Hanks himself, was kind enough to sign three copies for us. Actually, I really should have asked him to sign these ones. Anyway, anyway, whoops, not enough hours in the day. But back to the book. Here's the blurb, okay. Forrest Gump, Saving Private Ryan, Sleepless in Seattle. These are just a few movies the author of this week's giveaway stars in. But Tom Hanks is more than just an Academy Award-winning actor. He's also a writer. After his best-selling story collection, Uncommon Type, Hanks is back with his latest novel, The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. It's quite the mouthful. And I have three copies to give away. A wildly ambitious story of the making of a colossal star-studded multi-million dollar superhero action film and the humble comic book that inspired it all. Spanning 30 years of a changing America and culminating in the opening of the film, we meet a colourful cast of characters including a troubled soldier returning from war, a young boy with an artistic gift, an inspired and eccentric director, a pompous film star on the rise, a tireless production assistant and countless film crew members that together create Hollywood. Hollywood magic. Funny, touching, and wonderfully thought-provoking, the making of another major motion picture masterpiece offers an insider's take on the momentous efforts it takes to make a film. At once, a reflection on America's past and present, on the world of show business and the real world we live in. If you want your opportunity to win one of these three copies, just go to writercenter.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. Entries close on the 15th of May. So that's writercenter.com.au slash win. And if you're at that URL sometime in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic competition there for you to enter. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? The word of the week this week is habile. That's H-A-B-I-L-E, habile. It actually means skillful or dexterous. So you could say, for example, the habile skateboarders perform tricks on the forecourt stairs. Interestingly, there was a proto-human called Homo habilis, which came before Homo erectus. And I love that the direct translation of Homo habilis is handyman. So next time I need someone to fix some things around the house, I'm going to call a homo habilis. Anyway, there you go, habil. Now, guys, I just wanted to let you know that I did have a giant note in front of me saying, make sure you ask the surprise guest host about the word of the week, as I did for many, many episodes. But then when it came to record my chat with our surprise guest host, I promptly forgot. But anyway, let's move on. And now I have a surprise guest for you, someone that you know and love, of course, none other than Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate. It's (laughs) me, A.L. Tate. I'm back in your ears, people. Brace yourselves. I'm here again. And, of course, I have to say, how are you, Al? (laughs) 
Well, I am so missed saying that. I know, look, I and I've missed hearing it. But I have to tell you, um, I normally, of course, my response here would be fair to middling because that's <laughs> what normally I am. Um, but I'm actually, I'm excited. I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to be talking to you. I miss talking to you every week. I do. It's true. Oh, absolutely. And we want to hear all about what's been happening in your life and what's been going on. But I'm so <laughs> grateful for you to come back and make this cameo appearance because it's always great to. Catch up. It is always good to catch up. I've got, you know, good reason for being here today and we will discuss that a little bit later. Um, but where am I at? What are we? What have I been doing since we last spoke? When did we last speak? Yes, Was it like six months ago it. or something at least, <laughs> if not? But fill in all of our listeners with um, what you've been doing. All right. Um, okay. So, for, but there might be people who have no idea who I am. You've probably got a whole new fan base without me. There's probably people out there who are like, who is this mad woman who has dropped well, into Well, let my, me do a proper introduction into my orbit. For, yeah. for any new people. Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, is an all-round legend and a fantastic <laughs> author slash writer slash journalist slash podcaster. I have known her for ever basically, a very, very long time, decades. Been at least forever, yeah. It started off when we uh, had desks next to each other when we were both <laughs> journalists working for then Clio magazine. But since then, Alison has done many, many fantastic things. Apart from being a freelance writer, she's author of countless books, okay, not countless, but many, many books, including the Mapmaker Chronicle series, the Adaban Cipher series. Um, the book that's about to come out is, you fill in the blank, and we'll hear more about it in a sec. Oh, it's called The First Summer of <laughs> Callie McGee, and it's coming out in August. And I have another series called The Maven and Reeve Mysteries. So I was also co-host of this podcast for about 8,000 years, approximately. 8,000 years. At but now you have your own Two podcast. million downloads. But now I have my own podcast. And in yes. actual fact, the Your Kids Next Read podcast, which I co-host with the wonderful celebrity teacher librarian, Megan Daly, um, we've just celebrated 100 episodes. Can you oh believe that? Oh, my God, that's fantastic. 100 episodes. I know, I'm quite excited. It, it's gone very fast. I feel like that's kind of like been speeding downhill on a, like a snow skier downhill. Yes, yes. Um, that's yeah, so, so brilliant. Yeah, so 100 episodes of that. And, of course, so if you're if you're interested in your kids next week, not only does Alison have that fabulous podcast that you can tap into, but also there's a very active Facebook group. Is that correct? There is a Facebook community, um, which has now got about 29,000 members. So, you know, if you oh would God. like 28,999 of your best <laughs> friends to help you find the perfect next book for your kid, then you should definitely come and join us. But we have a great we have a great um, community of, uh, of parents and carers and teachers and booksellers and authors and all sorts in there. It's just a really great spot if you're writing for children or you're an aspiring author for children. It's a great spot to keep um, a finger on the pulse of what people are looking for, uh, what's being recommended, how to find, like if you're looking for comp titles for, you know, for a submission or something, um, mm. it, they will help you with that. You can just go, I'm looking for a book like blah, blah, and you'll have, you don't even have to tell them that you're actually secretly about to submit a manuscript. Um, I'm looking for a book like The Mapmaker Chronicles and for my 10-year-old, and they will then recommend you 7,000 different variations on that book for your comp title. So it's quite a handy spot to be really. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty busy. I've been doing all of that. Um, book Boy is about to go overseas. Can we all take a moment here? Because 
when I first started on the podcast, I think Book Boy was about 10. And mm. now Book, Book Boy has a pod, has a backpack and a guitar <laughs> and an EP and is, you know, heading off overseas for six months. So I had to say. And goodbye. I remember when Book Boy was non-existent. Oh, you do. Yeah. <laughs> it was a there was a time, book boy, when you were non-existent. Oh, those were the days. Um, yeah. So anyway, so he's off overseas, and wait for this, book boy Junior is in year eleven. No, year eleven. That's the youngest one, and oh is about six foot three. He is oh huge. He is an absolute. Like I have no idea what happened. I, I had a photo taken with the two of them the other day. And there was like these two enormous men and then just little me. And I'm not a small person. I'm not a short you are woman tall. at all. But I look like a like shrinky dink between the two of them. So <laughs> I don't know how this so happened. Tell us a bit about um Kelly McGee. Very, very exciting. So the pre-order link has just gone up for it. Um, I'm, I'm still finishing the copy edit, so that's there's no pressure at all there. Um, <laughs> but it is, yeah, the book is called The First Summer of Callie McGee. Um, and as you can probably hear from the title, it's a bit of a change of pace for me. So all of my books to date, my other eight books to date across three series, have been sort of adventure, mystery, not quite history. So I, I write um, fantasy, adventure and mystery stories, um, whereas this one is still adventure, it's still mystery, but it's actually contemporary. And it's been quite an interesting challenge for me because... Uh, people say to me, you know, oh, gosh, I have no idea how you make up entire worlds and people them with all these things and and what they look like. And um, in some ways for me, that's actually easier than trying to write within the constraints of the real world and getting the technology right and getting the slang right and making sure that the, mm -hmm. everything's age appropriate and making sure that, you know, characters are behaving in a way that they would if they were, you know, not quite 13. Um, you can't just make it up. You can't just go, I want this to happen. I'm going to make it work. Because in a fantasy story, you can do whatever you want as long as it makes sense within the world of the story. Whereas with a contemporary story, it's got to make sense in the world of the story, but also sense, you know, in the real world. Like there are certain things that are easier because if I say to you, you know, she made a phone call, I don't have to explain to you what that looks like. I don't have <laughs> to tell you how it's happened from start to finish. Whereas if I am in a fantasy world and I'm going to use, you know, my mail or something to send um, to send my message, I have to go into every detail about how mice mail works and how the mice get where they're going and how do they carry very heavy packages and how do they, you know, all that. Um, not that I've ever done that, but now that we're having this conversation, maybe I'm going <laughs> to yeah. introduce mice mail. Um, but, yeah, so those are those are sort of some of the, the challenges of it and just making it feel like you want that voice to be as genuine and, you know, authentic as you can make it to like a not quite 13-year-old girl. So it's it's been really interesting. But it was inspired by, um, you know, it, it came out of the idea of going on holidays to a holiday house on in a south coast, you know, kind of beach village, which is inspired by a place that I know well. Um, but it was inspired by the family friend group. You know, the people that you used to go on holidays with when you were a kid because your parents loved each other. And so then you were just thrown in with this mishmash of kids of all different ages and you're expected to get on and be friends because your parents are friends. And so therefore you must also all love each other. And it's not always it's not always a fun time. Like you're not always, you know, with the people that you would choose to be with. Um, so this is a family friend holiday and it's about Callie and she's 
She's just about to start high school. She wants to reinvent herself before she gets to high school. She's been like the super nerd at primary. She wants to go to high school being a somewhat cooler version of herself. And she's determined to use this week with the family friends to kind of make that happen. Um, and it's about what happens, you know, when things don't quite go to plan, as they never do in these circumstances. And then there's also a mystery um, involved because the coastal town of uh, Sawyer's Point is, you know, being rocked by a series of burglaries. And it's it's that thing of like when I was a kid, what I loved reading was mystery stories about groups of kids getting together, solving mysteries. Um, so it's kind of like my version of, of that of that sort of idea. And so what age group is it for? So it's middle grade. So I would say readers probably, it's probably in the eight to 12 um, zone of middle grade. So my Maven and Reeve mysteries probably, they are also classed as middle grade, but they're upper middle grade. So that would be more of your, you know, 10 to 14, whereas these are probably the lower end of it because our our hero, Callie, is, um, is you know, 12 and seven eighths like she's almost almost 13 so um you kind of think about that and it's it's um it's very much written for the middle grade market in that there's there's nothing troubling in there so you really I really had to think about how I was going to manage certain scenes to make sure that they you know got the gatekeeper tick of approval as things went through while still retaining that sort of edge that you actually really want Mm. when you're a middle grade reader. So it's out in August and we'll definitely get you back on the podcast yeah, to talk about sure. really your writing process and, you know, how you determined the plot and all of the things associated with it. So that's going to be exciting because they're going to get to talk to you again. But yes. what else have you been up to? Well, I've been, um, I think last time I was in, we talked about this and um, I've been working, one of the things that I've been working on for the last uh, sort of probably 12 months is various picture book manuscripts. I'm trying to, um, I'm quite keen to get a, I've set myself a challenge of getting myself a picture book uh, published. And, you know, it for someone like me who writes epic fantasy novels across, you know, three and four book series, um, picture books are actually very tricky because of the, mm-hmm. you know, the few words that you very actually few. have. Um, so it's it's almost like it's like writing a, um, it's like copywriting an ad campaign um, compared to writing a feature story for a magazine or something. And it takes, a, it takes a different part of the brain. And for me, it's also having to think visually and think about how much weight the pictures are going to take up as opposed to what you know, my text actually needs to say. So I've really been enjoying that though. It's I think it's always good as a writer to stretch yourself just by trying something different. Like you need to mm. have, you know, something else. Um, yes, do what you do and do what you do well, but also be trying to, to sort of do, do different things. One of the books I'm working on is all written in rhyme and I can tell oh, wow. you, well, that's been really that's been really interesting because I love writing in rhyme. I always loved it as a kid, not not poetry per se, but I just loved verse. And mm. um, but I've never really done anything with that. And so for me, the challenge with this is feeling like I'm not sounding twee whilst mm. writing, you know, something that's in rhyme. So um, that's been that's been an interesting thing. And then I'm working on a junior fiction kind of idea as well at the moment. Um, I mean, you know, the thing, anyone who's ever listened to me on the podcast over all these years would know that the ideas are not the problem with me. There's never (laughs) a shortage of something to write about. It's always for me just the the time and, um, and 
getting it right. Like just you know, Do you find it is a bit um, that you have a bit more time or that you can free up a bit more bandwidth now that your kids are, you know, older and they don't need as much attention or is that a myth? Well, it's interesting. Um, they take up more of your headspace when they're older. Like when they're younger, they are physically more demanding. You're very tired. They are always in your face. They are always there. So that is a problem in the sense of making that time. So that's why I always used to write in the middle of the night when my kids were young. When they're older, um, as they are now, so they're 19 and 16, like Book Boy Jr. is learning to drive and driving me oh insane, God. wanting to drive all the places. Um, and as I said, you know, Book Boy's he's been living in Sydney for over a year now. He's heading off overseas. So there's always that one part of you that's kind of like ticking away with, you know, can he pay his rent? Has he got a job? Is he, you know, like what's going on? Is he alive? Send me proof of life, please. I need to yes. know that you're alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, like my younger son is is doing year 11 and 12. So now we go into the HSC again because um, the HSC with Book Boy just took up a huge amount of my bandwidth. Like it's, yeah. it's an incredibly um, stressful time all round in a household. Um, so, yes, they don't take up as much physical time. And I do, I am able to like prioritize my writing and all of the things during the day. But I'm also, you know, I'm also doing a podcast. I also have a newsletter. I have, um, I do school visits and, you know, author talks. I'm going to literary festivals. I have an online writing group that I organize. I have mentoring sessions that I do. I have, you know, so it's never going to be just a straightforward, I've got six hours in the middle of the day to write. Um, And that's that's not a bad thing for me. It's not how I work anyway. But when you got so used to writing in the middle of the night, it becomes a habit. So do you not write in the middle of the night anymore? No, because I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really tired now. I mean, I'm getting on a bit of that. Give me a break, like honestly. But also I write in the, like I, I've always been sort of like now I read in the middle of the night so I'm able oh. to actually fill the creative well as opposed to like draining it every night before midnight and then sort of having to get up the next day. Um, I take a lot more care now about, you know, making sure that I'm putting the words in as well. And I and I try really hard to um to, you know, to go to the exhibitions to to kind of yeah. I'm trying to make sure that I, I keep all of my curiosity about the world and all of those sort of um keeping all my options open for what what might come up next. And I think that, yeah. that that's something that's really important, you know, again, as as you get older, because you know, none of us stays 35 forever, do we? Um <laughs> we have to <laughs> to keep sort of like (laughs) growing as people as we go. All right. Well, we'll definitely get you back when um, your next book comes out. Uh, But everyone, now that the pre-order link is available, what is the name of the book again? The book is called The First Summer of Callie McGee. The First Summer of Callie McGee. Now, you guys might not know, but it's really awesome when you do pre-order with an author. If you're planning to buy that book anyway, do pre-order because what happens with a pre-order is that when the book eventually is released, those pre-orders go into the statistics kind of um, for the first week week of sale, which means they go up the book charts. And that's why pre-orders are so useful. So if you are thinking of ordering the book anyway, do pre-order because um, not only will you get it then, you're really helping out that author with, um, with those stats. But thank you so much, Al, and we'll be back just after this break. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Do you want to write for children? Would you like to create characters and stories that kids will love? Our course in writing children's novels is the perfect way to start your journey towards becoming a children's author. This course focuses on writing for middle grade, that's 8 to 13 year olds. You'll discover how to find your voice, understand the market, take your characters and your readers on epic adventures and create a blueprint for succeeding as a writer. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning online with your very own tutor providing direct feedback on your writing. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children. That's writerscentre.com.au slash children. All right, we're back. Now, Al, one of the reasons that you're back this week is you kindly did the interview with this week's writer-in-residence, Emma Gray. Tell us why you wanted to do that. I did want to do it. So Emma and I have known each other for a, a very long time and I have followed her journey for a very long time. So when I saw that she had written a book called The Last Love Note, um, obviously I wanted to read that book because um, Emma, uh, her husband died suddenly about seven years ago and I have, you know, she had a young son at the time and I have have followed that sort of story, obviously, as a friend of hers um, over the, all of those years and the unfolding of, of, you know, of Emma's kind of, you know, existence in that way. And she she is a chronic oversharer. So, you know, I think we do talk about that in the interview. She is someone who wears her heart not only on her sleeve, but I think on her forehead, kind of leading through the door when she walks through. Um, and the book is just, so Megan Daly, who is my co-author, or, uh, sorry, my co-host on the Your Kids Next Read podcast, her husband um, unfortunately passed away very suddenly about a year after Emma's. Like you would not credit that you could have two friends in the same circle that this would happen to. But in actual fact, it's a lot more, um, unfortunately, a lot more sort of uh, frequent than you might imagine. Um, so I actually introduced Emma and Megan to each other at that time because I thought Megan might find it very helpful to be able to talk to someone who was just that little bit further down the track. So the last love note came out and Megan read it first and she's not someone, this is not the sort of thing she reads. She's not really a rom-commy sort of a girl. And, you know, it was about, you know, grief in all sorts of things. So she was a bit, but because they're friends, she was like, okay, I'm going to read it. And she absolutely loved it. And she said that Emma captured all of the catalog of feelings and emotions that that you know that you've kind of experienced at, at this time and um and obviously the book is set a little bit you know down the track from from when the main character's um husband has passed away so anyway and, and then she said to me you have to read the book al so you want to be a writer podcast is in the book it's in Isn't the novel incredible? and i was like what okay <laughs> so I read the book and it, it is actually, it's wonderful. It's a very, very funny book, but it's so deep and so heartfelt. And so, of course, I had to interview Emma. And how could I not interview her for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast when we, like, there we are, front and centre in the middle, in the book. So, um, yeah. So I, I very much in Yeah. I, and I, I just so enjoyed the, the opportunity to have the conversation with her about the writing of the book. So that's essentially the interview is there to talk about how you write through tragedy, which is what she has done, and how you write something that is sparkling and funny out of one of the worst moments of your whole life. So I hope you guys really enjoy it. 
Let's have a listen to Alison chatting to Emma. Emma Gray is a novelist, feature writer, photographer, professional speaker, and accountability coach. She is the author of three YA novels and a parenting memoir, and co-author with Audrey Thomas of a non-fiction book about time management. Her first adult novel, The Last Love Note, is out now through Penguin Australia. Welcome to So You Want to Be a Writer, Emma Gray. Thank you, Alison. It's lovely to be here. It's so good to be here. It's been too long since I've been on So You Want to Be a Writer, and it's an absolute joy to be here with you today. Um, Now, before we get to your recent work, let's go back to the beginning. Tell us about the first Emma Gray book that was published and how that came to be. Well, that was back in 2005, and it was a book called Wits End Before Breakfast, Confessions of a Working Mum. I think you can tell the vibe of that one. It was very much based on personal experience. My children, who are now in their early 20s, are are the sort of main characters of that book, and they they love that. They they love a bit of main character energy. Um, (laughs) It was something that came about actually by, I used to write a weekly email to my family and friends that was just my little downtime, you know, with young children and, and working full time. I used to just need something. And I had this little creative outlet where I would just sit down every Sunday and do a little email sort of blurb about the week. And my friends used to sort of forward this on to their, their parents and friends. And it, it, it ended up that one of them overheard somebody at a soccer match on a weekend talking about one of these stories and they were just on the sidelines, some strangers that we didn't know. And um, and she said, right. you know, I think you should stop emailing this around and send it to a publisher. So I did that and Lothian published it in, in 2005 and, um, and then I kind of thought, well, that's great because now I'm a writer and, you know, sort of imagine this entire career unfolding from there. And then the next book, Unrequited, the the first young adult um, novel, wasn't then published till 2017. So there's a little gap of, of over a decade. <laughs> Just a small one. Just a little one. It's like a blink yeah. of an eye, really, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, actually, it is almost the blink of an eye in publishing, yeah. I think, the way publishing yeah. moves. Mm. Were you writing fiction at the time that, uh, that the memoir was published? Like, were you working on stories at that time? Or was that kind of the first... Was that memoir your first sort of spark? I mean, I'd always imagined myself as writing novels ever since I was, you know, 14 and fell in love with Anne and and Gilbert. And, um, you know, I I started scribbling fiction stories back then and I always wanted to write fiction. I think I just got caught up in in life and and this one, that, that, that one came about almost accidentally. Um, but at the same time, I was still going to, to you know, writers' events and workshops and had the dream all along. Um, I don't know why it took so long to actually get pen on a page in a serious way. So let's talk about Unrequited, speaking of main character mm. energy, because I think um, it's a YA novel. Um, I think it was from memory uh, drawn a lot from your 
daughter's mm. love of One Direction. I'm feeling like yes, I've got this vibe enough. coming. Yeah. Um, and it is actually one that I, I still recommend as a, as a YA novel today. Like we often get in the Your Kids Next Read group um, questions about, you know, I'm looking for something light. My, you know, mm. my, my child wants to read, you know, a, a YA romance. And, um, mm. and in fact, Unrequited comes up a lot in that space. Um, and I feel like there's more space for that sort of fun romance type of book in that YA market but what drew you to that in the first place was it again just like looking at what was going on around you and and writing it down very much so my daughter Sophie loved Harry Styles but hated reading so I thought can I do something about this (laughs) can I put those two (laughs) things together for her and and show her that reading can be fun and I was actually at the One Direction concert with the girls in 20. 13 and I looked around and and saw all these sort of screaming fangirls and I thought imagine if you're at this concert and you really didn't want to be you were a young woman having to escort your younger sisters to this concert and you hated boy bands and thought the whole thing was ridiculous and so I got the idea for it there and I wanted to write that one in a way that would be easy for a non-reader to, to enjoy. So it was all very fast paced with short chapters and cliffhanger endings and lots of white space on the page and lots of dialogue and action. And I think that's what one of the appeals of that book. And I've had a lot of teachers and parents um, let me know that this was the first novel their child ever read or their students had actually sat down and read all the way through, which is a, a great thing to know because that's where it came from initially to, to you know, it was for a person that didn't like reading. Um, and then my friend Sally Whitwell, who is an ARIA winner, ARIA winning composer in Sydney, I went to school with her, she read it and she said, look, I've never been a fan of boy bands or boys for that matter. Um <laughs> but she said she's a classical musician she said I love this and I want to write a musical with you so we co-wrote a musical based on the the novel which we ended up putting on at Sophie's high school which was just this beautiful you know full circle thing and it was actually just the most joyous experience um that both of us had had 2017 we put it on it had been a really difficult year for both of both Sally and I and this was the thing that saved us and it was just having the exuberance of teenagers around and music and fun and a glitter cannon and a disco ball and all that sort of stuff (laughs) the romance can you go wrong I mean really a glitter cannon and a disco (laughs) ball where was I? No. I think Book Boy was lining up. He wanted to be. Yes. He wanted to be the leading man. Yes. If it went to yes. if it went to Broadway, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, all right. So you wrote three uh, novels in that space, and it was now two actually. There was oh, two. It was, yeah. oh, it was two. But one mm. was. Did one go out in a, under a different name? No, I I actually no, I actually self-published Unrequited before it was then later picked Ah. up by HarperCollins. Okay, so Um, yeah, my mistake. Two in that space, Hmm. Um, and now you've written your first adult novel. So tell us about the last love note. Hmm. Well, the last love note again is something that was drawn from personal experience. And in 2016, I lost my husband, Jeff, to a heart attack. And after Jeff died, I remember thinking, well, the only way I'm going to get through this grief or make any sense of what's happened is through writing. And I think any writers would understand that, that, you know, we use writing to understand what's going on in our lives and to process the world. So, I started by writing a lot of 
articles about you know the personal experiences we were going through and those were published on her Canberra and a few other um, publications and then I I thought well maybe I'll write a memoir about a midlife widow I was only 42 when Jeff died mm. uh, I had a five-year-old son and my my two teenage girls from my first marriage and I I remember thinking oh it's all a bit too close really to our own experience and so then I got the idea of fictionalising it and that was really the best possible approach, I think, because it meant that I could put so much into it that was from our genuine experience but make it in a world and about a character that was not us uh, and, and not our own our own lives. So it felt safer in a way but also really quite liberating to be able to to play around in somebody else's life, I guess, is is the best way to put it. But I also, then when you're thinking, well, I'm going to write a novel about grief, it could be quite a, a depressing read and quite a dark read. And there certainly is a lot of that depth in the book. But for some reason, it ended up being a romantic comedy. I think I just can't get away from the romance. <laughs> <laughs> I had too many disco balls in my past. But, um, it, you know, I couldn't get away from that I, and I wanted to write something that was hopeful. And so it's ended up as the kind of thing that would, um, you know, turn into one of those big romantic comedies that we that we go and see in the movies and emerge from in tears but for several different reasons, you know, tears of of sadness but also really uplifted and, and hopeful for the future. So when did you start writing it? Like as when did you get sort of the idea for making it fiction? Like at what point think, in the process? Yeah, I think it was about three years after Jeff died. And and had I started writing it any earlier, I don't think I knew enough about grief. I think we have this wish that, that we would be over grief more quickly than that and that, you know, I could have written it at the end of the first year or something. But that was really just the beginning of what I've been through. So I needed to sort of go through the grief alongside my character, Kate, and some of the experiences I had in the in the latter three years, so it took about three years to write, um, I wouldn't have even known to include had I tried to do it earlier on. Mm. And did you plan it out or, I mean, I get a sense that probably not. Like what's no. what's your writing process and how did that sort of work into this particular book? Yeah, I don't plan anything in, in my books or in real life, really. Um, but I I sat down. I remember the, getting the, I don't know what it was that triggered the idea of, of just starting, but I once I started, I got into it and I was writing it ridiculous, like 2 o'clock in the morning and, and all of this for about five weeks. And I think I got the first draft of about 65,000 words down in the in five weeks. It was just in, it was crazy. It was just you know unsustainable, really. But but that was um, that very skeleton draft, and then it took another you know couple of years of working on the book to to really knock it into the shape that we have now. Um, when I sent it to Ali Watts, on my agent Anjanette Fennell sent it to Ali Watts at Penguin, um, she. She just loved the story, um, but she had some amazing feedback on the structure of the book and um, and it went through massive edits um, from my end. In fact, I ended up <laughs> the night before I sent it back um, to Ali, I had COVID and 
I was delirious looking back at it <laughs> and I <laughs> decided that I should restructure most of it. So I, I literally had I had post-it notes because it's told in in dual timelines, I had post-it notes in two different colours and I sort of just marked the changes of, of timeline and then I was picking up enormous parts of the book and shuffling it around and I remember thinking, oh, it's okay, I'll just read it through again once more tomorrow before I send it back. But I woke up too sick to do that so I just sent it back as it is. <laughs> So it's all a bit hair raising in retrospect. And my yeah, agent because structurally, was, it, sorry, <laughs> no, I'll just say my agent was in a quiet panic at that point. Well, because structurally, it, it's it is you know it's back and forth, mm-hmm. and it goes back you know x number of years, four years, three mm-hmm. years. So even the past, you know, timeline is is in different mm-hmm. um, you know different times, and so with the structure of that, did you? How did you, when you sort of wrote that first draft, were yeah. you thinking about that structure or no. did you write it all as one sort of like? No, I, I've got a little team of friends who I call my alpha readers who are the ones that who who read the very, very early draft in its worst possible state and their, their whole job is just to go, keep going, it's really good. <laughs> without any constructive criticism because that would you know I just you just sort of need somebody to push you along through this early very early uh, fragile attempt at something and um, one of them said to me at one point just before that first jump back into the past she said oh right are you going to jump back now into the past and it was so it was her idea um, and it hadn't occurred to me at that point so I I did and and that's how I ended up doing it which actually was was a stroke of genius on her part because it meant that I could then really explore in a way that wasn't just Kate remembering what her husband was like yeah. but but really go back and be there with her husband and have these two storylines progressing through the book at the same time. So wh- when I was thinking about the the various questions and themes for this interview I wanted to call it creating in chaos or creating mm-hmm. in crisis because it's Actually, amazing to me that you've produced a sparkling romance with heart as your debut adult novel, because um, I know how difficult the last few years have been for you. Um, mm-hmm. But in writing the story that you've written here, you've also consigned yourself to talking about those years over and over again as part of talking about the book. Was that something that you took into consideration and sort of had to write the book anyway? Or was it yeah. something that you only realised when, when it was out there? <laughs> you know, well, just checking, Emma, because it could no, have gone either way here. Oh, it could have. No, it really could have. Um, well, firstly, it was a very cathartic thing to write. It really helped me to process my own grief and work through a lot of things. And it has, it seems to be a cathartic read for a lot of other people who have been through something similar. And I've had a lot of beautiful messages from people who have read the book and said things like, you know, you've articulated what I wasn't able to say, but it's exactly how I felt and that kind of thing. Um, I did actually deliberately want to contribute a book on grief because when this happened to me, I was just sideswiped because we don't talk about this. We don't mm-hmm. handle at all well in our society and so I did want to um, create something that would help to get this conversation out in the world and and help people to to talk and I've had people say they've shared this with their family members and then they've had conversations that they hadn't been able to have and that kind of thing so that's really really 
um, very rewarding, but it's also been difficult because, you know, you are having to retell them and I'm doing a library talk tomorrow night and I've already had a message from somebody whose husband died and she's coming along. And so I know that we'll be having more conversations again tomorrow about this and and it can be, um, you know, very confronting. Mm. Um, so I think it's just about having to, I think with any book that anyone writes that that covers difficult topics, I think we have to think as authors, how can I protect myself as well in all of this, both while we're writing it and then while we're talking about it in, in publicity afterwards and, and just put in some boundaries. I mean, we fled to the coast a few weeks ago. My sister recognised that I needed to get out of here and away from social media and, you know, just the barrage of, of things. Um, so we just went to the coast for the day and that was exactly what we needed. So it's it's finding that sort of thing. One of the things I do is I chase the aurora, and that's a theme that um, is in the book about chasing the aurora australis as a photographer. And so for me, it's it's photography. It just gets me out of my head and into the subject of what I'm taking photos of, and that that for me is the best way for me to, you know, put that distance between myself and the difficult subject matter. It's interesting. I feel like you've sort of almost written a book about grief for people who wouldn't pick up a book about grief in the mm. same way that you wrote a book for a YA reader who didn't want to read books. Yeah. I feel like this is a theme here for you. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right, actually. And I, I was very keen to package this story in a very accessible way, which is, a you know, the same kind of thing. Um, I did want this to be light and entertaining and uplifting and romantic and all the things I love in a story. Um, you know, I do have that kind of taste in books. I just, you know, I'm a rom-com enthusiast from way back. So I wanted it to have that kind of energy. And that's where I feel I write my best stuff. It's where I'm comfortable writing. And I think too, life is like that. There is light in the darkness. You know, we do have light and shade. You do laugh on the day of a funeral. You know, often you'll go to to the wake afterwards and there's a lot of laughter in the room because it just all goes together. Uh, I think we can't separate emotions and have um, only one th through a book like this. I think it's important to have a mix. I guess what's been interesting is that people are saying they're reading the book and they're laughing and crying on the same page. So mm -hmm. um, I guess, you know, that's, I don't know how that happened. I don't know because I don't plan it that way, but <laughs> that's sort of, you know, been the some of the feedback. You mentioned before that, you know, that the the sort of photography and the chasing of various aspects mm. of stars, which I love to follow on social media but don't want to do. Mm. Um, there are sort of many touchstones of your life that I recognise in your main character. Yeah. So how much of you is, is Kate? Oh, I think there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of that chaos of her is me. She's mm. one of those people that does seem to attract or create a lot of um, situations. I mean, the, the whole opening, there's an opening scene where her five-year-old son wanders out with her husband's grenade, a, a, an actual military artefact that he had collected on a battlefield. That happened in our lives. We had mm. the bomb squad come to our house. You know, it was <laughs> an absolute. And, of course, the whole time I live blogged that on Facebook and then was thinking the entire time that was unfolding, this has got to go into a book one day. You know, it's just such a great story. A lot of comedic potential here, even <laughs> though I guess I should have been wondering, worrying about our safety at that point. But um, 
<laughs> Will my house blow up? Ooh, this yeah, is going to make right. a great story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, in fact, when Ali read that draft, she said, oh, I don't know, this bit about the grenade just seems a bit far-fetched. <laughs> well, actually, I've toned that down from the real story. But, um, yeah, it's so there's a lot of that kind of thing. And I also um, I did things like we we lost our dog last year and... I and, and my husband had bought him as a puppy for me, and so there's that was this very layered grief. And I I thought, well, that's I want to almost memorialize that that story in the book. So there's there's those kinds of stories all through it that that were based very much in in personal experience. So that gave you you know a lot of rich material to draw from, but was it also a hindrance sometimes in that? I guess what I mean is, you know, having to write the book and imagine a different life for Kate. Um, mm. Did you have to get out of your own way sometimes? Like if she was doing things that you would not necessarily do, like she's fallen in love again and, mm. you know, is was that something that you had to sort of like be, okay, well, this is Kate, you know, this is not yeah. necessarily me? Yes, yeah, and that was actually fun. That was the fun part to imagine. Mm her um falling in love again and all that romance that whole storyline was fictionalized was fiction and um and I loved writing that part because that's what I'm used to writing in the other books you know it's the, the pure fiction usually mm. um my daughter has not in fact ended up with Harry Styles much to her dismay <laughs> so um <laughs> <laughs> so I really enjoyed playing around with that um you know that whole idea and I also have a lot of friends who I've met who are widowed in midlife who have repartnered and in fact our mutual friend Megan um and so I've seen a lot of that joyous um plan B future play out in other people's lives so I didn't have to look too far to imagine what it would be like so then we talk about the hero and in the acknowledgements, you said you had to create two, Cam and Hugh, to match up to your husband, Jeff. And in fact, I have to say that I think that the last paragraph in the acknowledgements was possibly the heart clencher of the entire book. Um, Justin, on the other hand, just feels like you were having like an enormous amount of fun. Like, yes. so what do you think is the secret to creating a great romantic hero? Well, I think, I mean, in, in a way I was said to someone else the other day who said, you know, you might meet someone in the future. And I said, well, it's going to be a tall order now because not only do I have Jeff, but I now have Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> so I just say good luck to the mortal men of the world who measure up to these people. So it, you know, it's, it's, it's a, um, it was fun. I guess he, Hugh is drawn from the best qualities of all the men that I have ever known, you know, including um, fictional heroes. Very, I think there's a bit of Gilbert Blythe in him. There's certainly aspects of his caring nature that I've drawn from my, my father who cares for my mum who has advanced dementia. Um, so his understanding qualities um, I think have been drawn from him and there's a little bit of Jeff in him as well. Um, but then the rest of him is just this this man who, you know, who just seemed... Um, well, I feel like I fell in love with him while I was writing writing the book. 
<laughs> so we just we just need him to turn up now. Isn't we do. Right? We just need him to knock on the front door now. <laughs> so Strange I get things have happened. I get the sense. I mean, the the book, as you say, you know, there's laughing and crying on the same page. There's this sort of this line between humor and heartfelt grief, which is you know often just all rolled in together. Um, and I'm getting the sense, you know, through our conversations and also just through following your social media posts that you know you 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 find the funny in very difficult places mm. sometimes is mm. is that just part of it i mean are you just an optimistic personality is <laughs> where does it come from how well, are you not I- curled up in a ball in a corner emma i guess that's oh, what i'm asking look, <laughs> i am sometimes and i would never want anyone to think that i'm not that i am constantly on and happy and out doing fun things all the time i do have times when and in fact just before christmas i had some really great news about this book um, and I remember thinking, oh, that's good, and just not feeling the way I thought I should probably have felt with the arrival of this news. And so I took myself to the doctor and ended up on antidepressants. And, you know, so there, there, there is definitely a lot of struggle um, mm. as well. And I want to be really open about that sort of thing too because I think that's just important in general in life. Um, I think a lot... A lot of the therapy for that for me has been the words. It's been writing. Um, there's there's definitely an element of being able to explore those feelings and um, and and put them. You know, figure out how I feel by by writing the words. But I would also say that when you lose somebody, particularly when you lose them suddenly, um, you just realize that life is short and it's such a cliche Mm. but until that happens I think we have this sort of fantasy that we have endless time ahead of us and it's just not necessarily the case so I think what it does is it just reprioritizes a lot of things so I will drop everything at a moment's notice and go on a mad dash like on the weekend when I decided we would just go and go to Wagga for a night and <laughs> look for the aurora, which we found for two seconds and then it clouded over. But, um, you know, just that sort of <laughs> spontaneous stuff, but leaving the house in absolute chaos, hadn't done the washing up, there was washing everywhere, it was just a mess, you know. So I think to me it's it's taught me that that if there's a possibility for something to be fun or interesting or nice, we should just go towards the light, go towards that whenever we can. And Rebecca Sparrow gave me this beautiful piece of advice that I actually put in the book. Um, When her daughter Georgie died, she said that she made a decision that Georgie's death was going to turn the light up in their lives, not down. Mm. And that's something that she told me very early on after Jeff died. And we, we took that on board and we just sort of, no matter how bad we felt in a day, and we always, you know, to this day, we think about this all the time, seven years later. Um, but no matter how we felt, we just sort of look for one little life-affirming thing in the day. And I think that kind of attitude is something that can help you get through even the darkest of times. The The opening scene in the supermarket is, is very emotional. Like it's just that sort of like you're doing this mundane thing and there's this, you know, like it, it, it's such a... Um, a 
such an authentic feeling scene. And I know from conversations with Megan Daly, who who mm. loved the book um, and was also widowed around the same time as you, mm. it's spot on. Like she said, it was, it was, she started reading the book and was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Um, But then she loved it and she was surprised by how much she loved the book, like the romance and how fun it was. But I can only imagine that it was very difficult to put some of those those things on the page. You know, like we talk with writing, you know, one of the things that I talk about all the time when I do workshops with kids, with adults, is, is the importance of putting it on the page, of making sure that the reader has you know, everything that they need to be able to understand the character and the feeling and the scene and the setting, you know, all of those sorts of things. But so I guess what I'm wondering is, was there ever a time where you wrote it all down and then cut it because it was just too much? Or was there a time when you pulled back too far because it was too hard and then you had to be encouraged to go further? Yeah, no, it was the opposite. I wrote it and then I thought, well, I'm just going to go further. And oh. I, went, so I went, I went, the, I went. Oh, why does this the whole way? Me? I went the whole way because I thought, you know, if I'm going to write this book, and if it is going to be such a personal one, I just better do it properly. You know, I just uh, and and because it was fiction, I think that's where I had the permission to do that. Mm. I mean, the whole supermarket scene was absolutely taken from reality, mm. and. And it is one of those things. It's interesting because it is such a mundane thing, but one of the hardest things that anyone ever has to face when they've just lost someone. There's a sense of normal life about a supermarket and you can't believe that all these people around you are just going about their their day as Mm. if nothing's happened. And I remember I was actually flown to America to speak at a conference in Jeff Sonner. He was a military historian. Um, about eight months after he died and I did that and I got up and I spoke in front of 400 military historians in America and and then I wrote an article about this but I mentioned something about the supermarket in that article and somebody in the comments which you should never read mm-hmm. um, said something like oh she can go overseas but she can't go to the supermarket mm. um, and I thought that person clearly has never lost someone and had to go to a supermarket because it is it will bring you to your knees. It is just awful. And I had somebody I knew sort of came into sight, saw me down the aisle and then moved back out of the aisle again because she was too awkward. It is awkward. It's Nobody knows what to say. All of that sort of stuff happens. And, in fact, in the first draft of the book I hadn't, I didn't have that prologue. I had started with the, you know, the humour of the grenade story, which is Chapter 1, and Ali from Penguin said, can we have a prologue where you do really dump us into mm. that emotion? And I knew immediately it had to be in the supermarket. You know, it sounds so frivolous on one level, but it's it's actually, um, I think, it's where, and this is why I'm always kind to people in supermarkets. You know, I always think there are people here who you have to come here because you've run out of you know, some essential item you can't live without. So you are forced out of your grief to get in the car and go there and get something. And I think that's probably why you see a lot of humanity um, in a supermarket. It's very true, actually. I remember standing behind an elderly gentleman at the checkouts one day and he was buying a very interesting array of, of things. And he stood there and he went to pay and he was in tears and he was like, this is the first time I've done this. You know, my yeah. wife used to do the shopping and I was, I was, you know, in tears myself Absolutely. standing behind him. Yeah. So 
the response, I mean, you know, the response is, is works a couple of ways. Like the response to the book in general has been absolutely incredible. But as you say, you know, don't read the comments. Were you um were, were you stressed about how it would be received given how personal it is? Yes. I mean, I think any author is stressed about how the book will be received no matter what we've written. Um, and I've felt that every time. But this time I felt this added layer of pressure because I felt like if this is is criticized, if the grief in this is criticized, I will feel like I'll take that personally. And mm. that would be quite crushing. Um, so I guess I had that as the added, just the added element of anxiety in, in, in putting the book out. And I was mm. really sort of relieved and and just so um, grateful for the feedback that it's receiving because, you know, it's been the opposite. It's been just overwhelmingly incredibly supportive um, and exciting. Well, yes, because there's um, it's coming out in the US, I believe, later mm. this year, and there's been some uh, potential movie interest. Does mm. that stuff all feel like slightly surreal to you? Oh, well, actually, the, the day that I had the... Um, chat on Zoom with Zibby Owens in New York, who's the American publisher. She was in her beautiful penthouse apartment overlooking Central Park and I was <laughs> in my kitchen with my dog, Frank. Um, and it was the same week that Coles had recalled the hallucinogenic spinach. And yeah. I, I remember thinking, have I been eating a lot of spinach lately? Um, <laughs> is this actually happening? And then I got in the car to go and meet a friend and that's Alicia Keys' song came on immediately, Empire State of Mind, and the chorus yeah. is all about New York and the whole song is about New York. And I thought, this just doesn't feel real. It's incredible. Um, so, yes, I, I still pinch myself over that. And she's she said, oh, we have, you know, we have author retreats in the Hamptons and um, I don't know, she's, oh, I think we'd get you over for those and she's planning a big book tour and it's just incredible. I'm absolutely, I still feel that that real imposter syndrome stuff is, is coming up. And then within a couple of days of the book being published, there were um, a couple of messages to our Australian publisher about um, from film companies in Australia and, and then Zibby had... Um, an inquiry from a big Hollywood production company who was keen to read it and who's reading it now. And since then, another big Hollywood um, company has got the book too. So, again, and we know, I mean, I think most authors know that that's a very long road that may never, we may never get to the end of that because it's, it can be quite um a tall order to have a book made into a movie. But the fact that anyone's interested has just blown my mind. <laughs> Well, I think, um, to be honest with you, I think from following you on social media that the most surprising thing for me about this book is that you managed to write it at all um, <laughs> it, because it's just been so crazy. Mm. Um, but you said, you know, that you wrote that first draft at 2 o'clock in the morning. Was this about kind of like squeezing it in around all of, like how did you, when and how did you write the book? That was a real compulsion to write it once I got started. I just... And that was the only time I seemed to have available where nobody was asking something of me. But um, because it's it's not just the family, it's the sandwich generation stuff with, you know, mm. there's been a, a whole lot of backstory here <laughs> that you're alluding to. So um, it, it became, but it became my escape. So it, it was more about how can I 
get rid of all this other stuff that's going on temporarily so that I can just get back into that book because it became the place I was escaping into rather than hard work. Um, the hard work came later during all the editing. So, yeah. you know, but that initial telling myself the story was really, really enjoyable. And even the even the hard parts I found enjoyable to write in a way because they it was me finally getting these words out and expressing what I've been going through. So before we get to the last question, I just wanted to say thank you for the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast shout out in the book. Yeah, I love awesome. that Kate is listening to Val and I in yeah. her writing journey. So obviously you have also been listening to So You Want to Be a Writer mm-hmm. for many years. Yes, I have, and following you and and Val um, for years, and um, doing courses and all. Of, I mean, I look up to you both. I think it's incredible, and so I wanted Kate, who is an aspiring writer herself, to have all those doubts that we all have, uh, you know, about how and how to write, and will I ever be published, and all of those questions. Do I have anything to say that's worth any, you know, worth reading? Um, and so I have her lying in a hammock um, listening to the, to your podcast and realising that actually most authors have these doubts and, you know, it's a matter of persisting and pushing through and getting through all the rejection and, and um, knockbacks and all of those things that can really hinder our mindset. Um, so I've got her there in the hammock listening to you. Which is the perfect place to listen to So You Want yeah. to Be a Writer, yeah. in a hammock. Yeah. Um, now, given you are so familiar with the podcast, you will know then that my last question is going to be, Emma Gray, tell us your top three tips for writers. Mm. Um, all right. Well, I guess the first one, based on what we've discussed already, is probably the the old chestnut of write what you know. I think... I think the times when my writing has gone off course, it's been because I've been trying to do something a bit clever that is just too far from my personal experience. And I don't have what it takes to do the the research for, you know, something like I haven't tried to write historical fiction, but if I did, I I know I'd think, well, I just, I don't have the the patience to do proper (laughs) research. So write what you know, it, it tends to, I think that's probably, you know, one of the top tips. I guess a lot of the things I think about are to do with um, the mindset of rejection and um, I have now got a chart on my kitchen wall for collecting my rejections and failures, which the kids look at and, in fact, put things on there for me sometimes if it's happened. Um, And I've had to come to terms with and and almost embrace the idea that if we're going to get anywhere, then we have to get comfortable with with rejection. Mm. Um, So I love that whole idea that isn't mine that uh, of chasing 100 rejections in a year. It just takes away some of the pressure and makes it more of a game. And I guess you're distributing your the risk. (laughs) So and there have been times when I put things out and I'd forgotten about that and it's come back and it's been positive. And so I, I really really think embracing rejection is a big one. And and then I guess the third one would be to, to find that little team of alpha readers who you can trust to just help you with your mindset as you stumble through that first draft. Mm. Um, because we can't, um, we, it's that whole thing of, you know, you can't edit a blank page and that 
to have people that will go, I love it, keep going, and not offer anything else at that point. Um, if you can find those people or even one person who can do that for you, I think that can that has really helped me over the years. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Emma. Um, I love the last love note and I think that it's going to go actual gangbusters for you. Where can people find you online if they want to find out more about you? On Facebook and Instagram, I'm on Emma Gray Author and emmagray.com.au. Fantastic. And, of course, if you are looking for me, I am at alisontate.com and I am at Alison Tate Writer on Facebook and Instagram and at Al Tate on Twitter. It's been a pleasure and um, we will talk to you, I reckon, probably about the movie next. <laughs> that would be lovely. <laughs> Get some more of that spinach into us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so huge thanks to Emma Gray for not only chatting to us, but also for mentioning this podcast in her book. Also, a very big thanks to Alison for doing the interview. Now, some of you might be wondering why I didn't do the interview. Well, apart from the fact that it's just always wonderful to have Alison back on the podcast, I will tell you this. Now, I'm kind of the opposite of oversharing. Well, unless it's about my cat, because I think... The whole world should know how cute he is because he really does just make people smile. But aside from my cat, Rocky, I'm not really an oversharer. So it's taken me 15 months to share this with you. If you've been listening for a long time, or if you have followed me on social media for a while, you may know that this is not my only podcast. Until last year, I had another weekly podcast, which I co-hosted with one of my best friends, Gina Militia, and we did that for about seven years. I've had an interest in photography, so it's called So You Want to Be a Photographer, right? Yep, So You Want to Be a Writer, So You Want to Be a Photographer. And there was a whole other community that kind of lived in parallel in the in the world for people who were interested in photography. So I've had an interest in photography, and I knew I could unpack so many of Gina's incredible photography tips on the podcast by interviewing her and chatting to her and drawing it all out. We also interviewed some fantastic um, photographers as well. It did have a lovely community of listeners, which is still going, and half of them actually were from the Northern Hemisphere, so that was pretty cool, and they would often message us and tell us how much they enjoyed, you know, two Aussie chicks talking about photography. Anyhow, I haven't mentioned this on this podcast just because I really couldn't talk about it, but very sadly, my dear friend, my dear and wonderful friend, Gina, passed away 15 months ago. Of course, not Having that podcast to record with her every week left this obvious physical hole in my week. But of course, not having Gina left a bigger hole in my whole life. You know, we've been friends for 30 years. So I will admit that I have avoided stories that involve grief or that are underpinned by the concept of grief, no matter how amazing they are, basically because it had been a coping mechanism for me. And I know, of course, that will change in the future in the same way that I'm now able to actually talk about what happened, you know, to you guys now. It's funny because there was um, recently an episode of Succession. If you know you're a fan of Succession, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's such a great show. If you're not a fan or if you haven't uh, watched it, it's absolutely worth it. Anyway, in a recent episode of Succession, 
that one of the characters, a strong woman called Shiv, um, gets her assistant to schedule, you know, the little gaps in the meeting rooms when they're available in between bookings. So she can just go in there for 20 minutes, whatever, and have a cry. And when she tells her husband that he, you know, that that's what she's doing, he says, you're scheduling your grief. And even though the circumstances of that situation are so sad, I had to laugh out loud because I realized that's exactly what I've been doing. I I realized that because I, I even told a good friend, I'm going to let myself grieve on this day. And I told her an actual date. (laughs) So anyway, of course, that's kind of ridiculous, but we all deal with these things in different ways, right? So massive thank you to Alison for chatting to the wonderful Emma Gray. But let's move on. We're almost at the end of this week's episode. My fun fact for you this week is the American author Cormac McCarthy, who wrote novels such as No Country for Old Men and The Road, used the same typewriter for 50 years, estimating that he wrote around 5 million words on it. Now, Cormac McCarthy finally retired the machine in 2009 and it was auctioned off by Christie's for, are you ready for this? $254,500. Not bad considering he bought it secondhand for $50 back in 1963. I mean, can you imagine your laptop today lasting 50 years? Never going to happen. All right. This brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. If you want my cat Rocky to bring a smile to your face, he is on Instagram, Productive Rocky and he has the same handle on his YouTube channel. Anyway, also, please do join the listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.